Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. We're making our way through Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where the Lord Jesus Christ addressed seven human messengers with a message to each of these churches. Now this morning we are in Revelation 2 and Christ had a message for the church at Smyrna. This day, today, the Lord's Day, looks quite a bit different around the world. The Chinese government most recent crackdown on Christians and churches has meant that Christians have died. China's policy is very, very tough on Christians, putting more believers in prison than in any other country in the world. The confiscation of church property, the confiscation of Bibles continues. But the church of Jesus Christ in China continues to grow because God's truth and God's church cannot be extinguished. The house church movement endures incredible persecution, persecution we don't even understand here, yet it stands on its commitment to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. The Myanmar military government attacked recently 22 villages of a tribe that is made up of mostly believers in Jesus Christ. And witnesses report that the military beat and stabbed Christians to death. Pastors have been known to disappear. Over 100,000 Christians right now have been forced to flee their homes because of the fighting there. 100,000. They are living in camps but denied access to food and health care. Why? Because they're not Buddhists. The Christians in Vietnam have long suffered house churches being raided, evangelists and church leaders being arrested in the dark of the night. But now they face a new unique problem. With COVID-19, Christians are finding out that they are being denied help. Why? Simply because they are Christians. Sudan, you know this. Sudan has been a place of Christian persecution for decades and decades where historically they've been given three options. They have been told to either convert to the Muslim faith, flee, or be killed for your faith. Christian families have been torn apart. Children and women have been sold as slaves. And now with South Sudan breaking off from the rest of the country in 2011, Christians are finding a whole new wave of persecution. Christians are being arrested. And they are battling starvation because in the South Sudan, almost 7 million people do not know where their next meal will come from. Only 90 miles off the Straits of Florida is the island of Cuba. You remember in 1959, Fidel Castro came to power threatening, threatening socialism or death. And in the mid-60s, he made that statement. Castro said that Christians are social scum. They are forced, forced for many years to live in labor camps. In 1996, the Ministry of Justice ordered the closing of all house churches there, but thankfully, thankfully most Christians there, they did not comply. 
The government today claims they have religious freedom. Oh, they can say that all they want. But Christians continue to be imprisoned and house churches continue to be closed. In Pakistan, I have friends in Pakistan. In Pakistan, Christians are often accused of breaking law 295C, which is the crime of blaspheming Muhammad, a crime that is punishable by death. If a Christian is acquitted of such a charge, they are usually killed by mobs. But despite the hardships that they face, Christians continue in love and perseverance, boldly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been rightly said that there have been more Christian martyrs in recent years than in the days of Caesar. Tens of thousands of Christians are killed every year around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's been estimated that since the first century, there have been over 70 million Christians put to death for refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And more people lost their lives in the last 120 years for the Christian faith than in all the previous 1,800 plus years put together. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are suffering today, now, right now. And I wonder how much it matters to us because it doesn't involve us. For Christians living in the Muslim world, torture and arrest are part of a daily routine, a daily life. In Saudi Arabia, they have religious police whose job it is to search homes and make arrests. They go around confiscating Bibles and anything that proclaims the name of Christ. But it's not just the Muslim countries. Christians are persecuted in North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Laos, Nigeria, Afghanistan, India. In Ethiopia, government troops raided the largest evangelical church, arresting most of the people. And many of the people died in jail and their bodies were thrown out to be eaten by animals. A mission worker in Ethiopia reported that the Christians fleeing there from the Sudan were naked except for the rags around their waists, and all of them had a dull concentration camp stare of the starving. But genocide and starvation has not brought an abandonment of the faith. The church of Jesus Christ is thriving in these places. Maybe they have the strong faith. Maybe we have the weak faith. Maybe they are blessed. It leaves me asking myself the question, what gave these men and women the courage to stand firm in their belief, even in the face of death? And that question begs another question. Do I have what it takes in my faith to face death and stay true to what I believe in the Bible? You see, so much of what makes this sermon difficult, so difficult to preach, is that we are Christians living in America, and we know so little of what it means to suffer for our faith. A little virus comes along, and most of the church just scatters. Being born in this country does not mean we are better than Christians living in other countries. It does not just means that we have freedom that much of the world does not enjoy. And it just means that we have a responsibility here as Christians to use that freedom to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ scattered around the globe. Christians living in Smyrna, they knew the persecution. 35 miles, almost due north of Ephesus, on the Bay of the Aegean Sea, was this city known as Smyrna. Today it goes by a different name, in the country of Turkey, but this city, it still exists. 
and it's home to 200,000 people today with the old city blended in with the new. Now this in its day was a beautiful city. It was absolutely beautiful. Its shore included the blue waters of the sea, the golden sand of the beaches, and the inland hills were covered with the dark green of the cypress trees. The city itself was known as the lovely, the crown of Ionia, the ornament of Asia. This was a city in John's day with wide paved roads. It had many temples. It had a library in it, a gymnasium, a stadium, and a theater. Smyrna was considered to be the most ideal city on the face of the earth. But behind the beauty, there was a wicked persecution and a satanic opposition to Jesus Christ. No other of the seven cities listed in these chapters were so stained with the blood of the martyrs for Christ. Smyrna was a place of wealth. It was a trade center for exporting wine and myrrh. Now, myrrh was extremely important in that day. Why was it so important? Well, it was used for embalming the dead. When it was burned or crushed, myrrh was used as a perfume. And this is where the name, the wording of Smyrna comes from. It means myrrh because this is what they were known for. Now, in Smyrna, almost every pagan god was worshipped. It's kind of like the United States. Almost every pagan god was worshipped. But the people also had a fanatical allegiance to Rome. And this meant that the people would not compromise when it came to what they believed and what could be worshipped. Whatever the Roman government dictated on religion is what the people of Smyrna did. And this is what led to the death of many Christians, because not only did the people worship the pagan gods of the day, the people of Smyrna enthusiastically took part in the worship of the Roman emperor. And during this time, the worship of the Roman emperor was mandatory. Each year, a Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar and to acknowledge publicly that Caesar, Caesar was supreme Lord. Keeping in mind that during the time of this letter being written, Domitian was the Roman emperor and he wanted the people, he wanted them to worship him. See, the burning of a pinch of incense was rewarded by a certificate and it had to be renewed each and every single year. And if you failed to get that little certificate or failed to show for that certificate when asked for it, it meant that the magistrates could come along and they could put you in death for committing treason. And the city of Smyrna was one of the most loyal cities in the Roman Empire. This was one of the cities that enthusiastically took part in this. And once you burned incense to the emperor, you were then free to worship whatever god or gods that you chose. But for the redeemed in Jesus Christ, there's no way that you could do this. There's no way that you could do this and be true to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many Christians, many Christians refused, rightly so, and they were burned, burned alive at the stake or torn apart by the wild beasts in the arenas because they refused to offer worship to Caesar. Also remember that in this city was a very large Jewish community who joined up with the Romans to oppose the Christian faith. So understand as we go into this that Smyrna was a beautiful city and it was a materialistic city who carried out their allegiance to Rome. And in this city there was a group of Christians with a shared testimony for Christ. But notice in this text, Christ does not take issue with their faith. 
For both the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia, there's no criticism from the Lord with the faith of these Christians. Verse 8 of Revelation 2 tells us this. It says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. In the midst of this wicked city, there was a congregation of believers giving Jesus Christ the first place in their lives. Remember what we discussed last week. Christ uses different descriptions of himself in these messages to the churches, which are relevant to the issues at hand with each specific church. For the church of Ephesus, it was that Christ stood in the midst of the lampstands, that Christ was in control of his church. But what does he say to Smyrna? For Smyrna, Christ describes himself specifically as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. What is he saying? Well, he's telling us that Christ is once again claiming absolute deity. As the first, he existed before all created things. And as the last, he, re he remains after everything here on earth has passed away. He's the eternal God who has always existed in the past and he will always exist in the future. Now this description of who he is was given to the believers at Smyrna to put into perspective this storm of persecution that they were facing. These believers in Christ could take refuge in him. Isaiah 44, verse 6 proclaims this. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel... And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, what does it say? I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. See, Christ was telling these first century Christians that even then, even when we are surrounded by the doctrines of demons, even when all the men around us are worshiping false gods, there is peace in knowing that we serve the one true God. Notice that Jesus describes himself as the one who was dead and came to life. This focuses on his humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ stepped into time and became so identified with man. Literally, the text reads that he became dead. That's how it reads. This points to the cross, doesn't it? It points to the cross. This is the deliberate action of Christ of subjecting himself to death. See, the Lord Jesus Christ understood their suffering because he subjected himself to the persecution and rejection of man. He died upon the cross. He belongs to eternity. And yet in time, he allowed himself to be put to death. But the victory for us is that he did not stay in the grave. He came to life. Think of the great application for the church at Smyrna as they faced their own death. They would look to these words and recognize that the resurrection of Christ means that death has lost its sting. Death is no longer something that we as Christians, as believers in him, should fear. It shouldn't strike terror in us. Remember, for the people of Smyrna, they worshiped the goddess of Sabeel. She was the nature goddess. The belief was that she descended into death in the winter and resurrection was in the spring. And the city of Smyrna itself was known as the city that became dead and lived again. The city of Smyrna was destroyed. And for a period of four centuries, four centuries, it wasn't even recognized as a city. But eventually it was restored and became known as the city that became dead and lived again. 
Now, the redeemed in Christ at Smyrna could turn with confidence from the mythology of their past. They could turn from the memories of history to the one who died and burst forth from the grave in resurrection power. They could look to the one who would give them victory over the grave. No greater comfort would, could be given to the persecuted church than to remind them that the Lord Jesus was still in their midst and that he himself had already conquered death. Verse 9 in your text. He says to him, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I wonder if words like this could be said in many churches today. Christ was perfectly aware of all the circumstances facing the church. See, he knew their works. He knew the tribulation they were facing, the pressures they were living under, because the circumstances at hand were being used to a attempt to crush their testimony for Jesus Christ. They were under the pressure, literally is what the text is saying, of the government officials in Smyrna forcing men and women to worship the emperor. Christ knew their poverty. Understand that back then, the different trades that people made a living from were often connected with all sorts of things that as Christians, they didn't want to be a part of. And when your life is in constant danger because of your faith, it's hard to run a business. It's hard to earn a living as a believer in Christ when your life is in danger. And to refuse to show your allegiance to Caesar meant that you were always, always at risk. You were always in danger. Not poor like we think of it today on a government handout with a brand new iPhone. That's not what he's saying. The wording means that they were destitute, that they had been completely stripped of every material resource they had. The image is given here of men and women starving, maybe even homeless, all because of their stand for Christ. But notice what he says here. He says, but you are what? Rich. See, the best explanation of what it's getting ahead here in the text are the words of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor, that through his poverty might become rich. Or James 2, 5, using the same wording as that of Revelation 2. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen who? The poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. See, this is the rich faith that many of the poor believers around the globe have as their present possession right now. Joseph Stoll, some of you know who he is. He wrote about this type of faith. When he was the president at Moody Bible Institute, back when I was going there, they had a college student from Belarus. And after the Soviet Union fell, this kid named Victor, Victor came all the way to Moody to go to school. Now, Dr. Stoll went back with him to visit Victor's mom in Belarus. His mom lived 58 miles out of a town in a tiny little backwater village. Now, the first time that Dr. Stoll went there, they were the first foreigners to have shown up in 60 years. Think of that. No one had come to see this town from outside in 60 years. And as they went off the road, driving along down this long, twisted dirt path, they came to this little village, this little village with just shacks. 
And at the end of the dirt road, just before a curve, was this two-bedroom shack. I mean, it was nothing. And with a little garden out on one side and a dilapidated tiny barn behind the garden, they pulled up their van and they started to get out. And there's Victor's mom. And Victor's mom just comes running out to see them. She had a headscarf tied underneath her chin and she had one of those ruddy faces where she's just beaming with joy. Stoll thought it was at first because she was going to see her son, Victor. And sure, that was part of it. But all that this woman could talk about was Jesus. That was all she could talk about was the Lord Jesus Christ and heaven and how much she loves the Lord for what he's done for us and what the Lord means to her. And she never stopped beaming with joy. She was poor. She had a little garden. She had a kitchen. Another room that was divided by a sheet on a rope to make living room and a bedroom. And in her dilapidated barn, she had one pig. One pig. While she was taking this pig and raising it all summer long just so she could have meat in the winter. That's her portfolio. That's what she had. But that's one rich woman. Because if you are a child of the king, you are rich. Let me tell you, Christian, if you've got him, you've got enough. If you've got the king, you've got enough. See, the Christians at Smyrna had lost most of what they had. I mean, they'd lost it all. But the riches they had in Christ was a wealth that no enemy, no man could ever touch. And the Lord tells him here, he says, I know your enemies. Do you like that? I know your enemies. Think that through. You can go home and you can call all the people who are making trouble for you in your life and say, Jesus knows about you because he knows your enemies. Christ knew the blasphemy of the Jews. They're labeled here as a synagogue of Satan. I hope you see the bluntness of the word of God. The word of God doesn't sugarcoat it when men have false doctrine. Jewish men by birth, but they were lacking faith. These were people who were born into the nation of Israel, but they were without faith, without circumcised hearts. Paul talked about this, didn't he, in Romans 9, where he said, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. The Jewish people of Smyrna that belonged to the synagogue had rejected Christ and were making trouble for the Christians. This is how Christ sees people who have religion but do not have faith in him. He calls it a synagogue of Satan, enemies of God. Jesus said much the same in John 8, 44, when he told the Jews who had rejected him, he said, you are of your father, the devil. You can call yourself a church, but if you're pushing any other message than faith alone and Christ alone, you're not of God. Hear that. See, the religious establishment of any age is usually the most active enemy to the genuine faith in Christ. These Jews were liars because they denied the absolute deity of Christ. They lied about who Christ is. They lied about the resurrection. These were the days when the church was hated and persecuted. Instead of meeting in fancy buildings, they gathered in caves, in the catacombs, and in hidden places. They were despised by the world and condemned as enemies of the Roman Empire because of their faith in Christ. And so 
the Lord tells him in verse 10, he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This could be translated correctly as stop fearing. Stop it. Just stop fearing. Don't be so afraid. It would seem by the wording used that fear was already taking hold. Fear was already gripping onto their hearts because the storm clouds of persecution were coming. They were gathering. But Christ wanted his followers to know that they didn't need to live in constant fear. Even though the world hated them, they could have boldness for Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Fear's not of God. Fear is not of God. Worry is not of God. The world is always, always in a state of fear. Fear of sickness and disease, hurricanes, death, global warming. But this is not how the people of God should live. Jot down Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Study those verses hard because they teach us that the fear of death, the fear of death is a bondage that comes from Satan himself. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means we have been released from the bondage of the fear of death. Notice Christ does not promise them the prosperity gospel. He doesn't promise them safety. He doesn't promise them that they would not die for their faith. What does Christ tell them? He tells them that things are about to get even worse. How's that for some good news? Things are going to get worse. You're going to go through it. Look at the wording. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. The wording suggests the imminent bursting of a storm of persecution. See, the devil is still the enemy. He is the one who is opposed to God and the people of God. And Satan, Satan was about to use his position and power to try to stamp out their testimony for Christ. And he would use men to do this, probably some of the Jews mentioned in verse 9, using them to stir up the authorities. Some of the Christians there in Smyrna would be arrested. Some of the Christians would lose their lives. Christ knew all about this attack from Satan. I think a lesson for the church that we should always remember is that Satan uses men to attack the church of Christ. So we should not be surprised when it happens when men come and stir up trouble. But notice the purpose of this from Christ's point of view. He says that you may be tested. The picture given is of one believer after another being hauled off to prison, being led off to prison. The devil was about to keep casting Christians into prison one after another. False accusations, civil charges, with death as the ultimate weapon. And the impression I am left with because of the wording used is that of Satan hoping to tempt them to renounce their faith in Christ. But let us remember God himself, God was the one that was allowing this to happen to test the believers. And the clear teaching of this passage of this text is that Christ is glorified through the trials that Satan intends for evil. And if Christians understood this, it would bring new strength to these believers in Christ. But what did Christ mean here that they would have tribulation 10 days? I honestly see no reason to take this other than just how it reads, <laughs> that these believers would have a period of 10 days of tribulation. Isn't that the simplest answer? This is how the church at Smyrna, I think, would have received it as a simple warning to the church, as a warning of a 10-day period where the tribulation, the pressures facing them, would be worse than anything that they had ever seen. 
The faith of these believers was going to be tested to their limit. And piecing together the facts we have, this could have taken place in the closing days of the Emperor Domitian's reign. And if this was a literal warning to this church, they would be able to count the days to the end of this storm of persecution. Knowing that Christ himself, think of this comforting word, Christ himself had set a limit on the number of days of their trial. And the last part of verse 10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Remember how this verse started out. It started out by saying, Stop fearing. Stop fearing. The idea is of a believer of Christ whom Christ could trust to maintain his confidence in him, even to the point of death. This is Christ's expectation, faithfulness right up until the point of death. And I think we have a perfect example of this in Scripture, don't we? In Acts 12 of Peter, he'd been arrested by Herod and he was to be killed after the Passover. And James had already been killed by the sword. And Peter was next. But what do we find in Acts 12? We find Peter in prison and Peter was sleeping. Peter was asleep. That's a testimony of a man not fearing death. It's hard to be asleep and being scared at the same time. That's a testimony of faith. Not every Christian at Smyrna would die, but some of them would. And your willingness to lay down your life is the ultimate demonstration of your faith in Christ. Now, the Christians understood this could be a violent death. And he holds out the promise of the crown of life to the faithful. Smyrna had all sorts of temples there. They had one for Zeus. They had one for Apollo. They had one for Aphrodite. They had one for Asclepius, Demeter. Sabeel, they had a curved street that was known as the Street of Gold. And there was a temple to Sabeel on the one end, and there was a temple to Zeus on the other end. And this ring of temples around the city was called the Crown of Ionia. Hear the message. Those faithful to Christ dying at the stake, they could lift up their eyes and see the Crown of Temples. And to them, Christ promised what? The Crown of Life. The idea of a crown also pulls from the image of the Greek and Roman athletic games. Smyrna was another city that hosted these games. But notice the focus in this passage on the crown of life. The idea here is there's no loss. There's no sense of defeat in death. There's only the idea of victory. Now, some see this here and some good men. Good men see this as a reference to a reward given to those put to death for Christ as a reward above and beyond eternal life. I am not one who thinks this. I don't think the context supports it. In this case, I believe it should be translated not crown of life, but the crown which is life. I don't think this is a special reward above and beyond eternal life. The crown of life represents eternal life. It's the same, in my opinion, as the eating of the tree of life back in verse 7. So beyond the prison cell, beyond the burning stake, these precious believers in Christ could take comfort in the crown of life that was waiting for them. And the pages of church history teach us that the faithful testimony of the dying Christians repeatedly led those who persecute to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because the convincing power of the truth of the gospel of Christ on display in those who would be faithful unto death. Those were the days... Those were the days when claiming to be a Christian meant something. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
This is the responsibility of the believer in Christ to respond to the Spirit of God teaching to us through the written word. The message now expands to the churches. Notice it says churches, plural. When persecution comes here, because it will come here, it's just a matter of time. When persecution comes here, take comfort. This is your source book to go to. Look at this. Take comfort from this. Because if you should be tested to the point of death, let these words grip your heart and give you continued hope in Christ. Torture in the Roman Empire could be extremely cruel back in that day. Being tortured on the rack, burned at the stake, or thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. But Christ promised it shines through the pain. See, men can inflict pain. Sure, they can do that. And men can kill our bodies. They can do that. But the redeemed in Christ cannot be touched. We cannot be hurt by something that is far worse. What's far worse than that? The second death. And what is the second death? Well, the answer to that is found in Revelation 21.8, that unbelievers shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The second death is for those that are lost, those that are not regenerated unto new life. This is an eternal death that will come upon them at the great white throne judgment. Because those, hear me, who are born once die twice. Those who are born twice die only once. And no believer in Christ has a part in the second death. Revelation 20 verse 6 teaches us that for those in Christ, the second death, it has no power over us. But notice the careful wording of Christ here in verse 11. It says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I wish you guys could read this in the Greek. It's so strong. The lost will face a second death. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire. And the second death, it involves something far much worse than just that. It's being eternally separated from a holy and righteous God. It's being eternally separated from the creator, God himself. There's no resurrection from this death. And this is something that the lost will be aware of. They will be conscious of. This is never-ending suffering. What men can do to our bodies now may give us some cause for concern, but the righteous judgment of a holy God against sin, that, that should make our souls tremble. As Jesus himself testified in Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear who? Him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. But listen, here's the promise to the redeemed, for the overcomer, for the believer in Jesus Christ. Where Christ testifies, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The words shall not be. This is the strongest wording. This is the strongest wording that can be used in the Greek language to testify that there is absolutely zero chance, no way that the second death can hurt those who overcome. Any persecution that we face down here right now, as intense as it may be, is brief. It's short compared to the endless life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does not promise that we will not face persecution. He doesn't promise you that. Get that out of your head because it's coming. But he does promise something greater, the grace to endure without fear, and the promise that he will bring us through to the crown of life. Jesus tells us to be faithful. So hang in there, Christians. Don't quit. Be faithful unto death. Meaning, even if your loyalty to Jesus Christ means you face death, 
Don't be intimidated by this lost and dying world. I was reading the account of an eyewitness that describes some of the atrocities against Christians in South Sudan when the persecution was at some of its worst. Men were lifted up on crosses in the village squares and crucified to mock the Savior that they worship. And this witness testified that he saw troops come in, load Christians into flatbed trucks, driving them off out into the desert and dump them out in the middle of the desert with no supplies so that the Christians would just simply die out in the desert, all for the crime of being a follower of Jesus Christ. This witness described what he saw in the capital of the country where all the parents had been killed at the time because their pattern was to kill the parents first and then make the kids into Islamic converts and then sell them off as slaves. As he walked through the capital, about 40 kids whose parents had been killed stood in the town square. And a leader of the mosque, he came out and he stood up on a platform and with one of those bullhorns, he told these kids to bow down to Allah and repeat a prayer of conversion after him. Well, all of these little kids except one went down. This kid looked to be just about Annika's age, maybe eight or nine years old. And the mullah, he got angry. He got very angry at this. And he said, you bow down. I told you to bow down. If you do not bow down, I will kill you. But this young little child said this, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I cannot, I cannot bow down. So the mullah, he motioned to the guards and the guards shot him and he dropped dead. But as soon as the kids dropped, eight other kids stood up. And the mullah said, I will kill all of you, all of you. And they didn't move. And four of them were shot dead. And then finally, in anger, the mullah said, you're not worthy of death. So he sold the rest off into slavery. I tell you this because I want the church of Jesus Christ to wake up. This is the persecution that is happening in places all around the world right now, in our time, in our day where Christians have to stand up and say, even if it means death, I'm not going to give up. I'll follow my Savior all the way to the cross. I'm a little tired of the weak church in the United States. I'm a little tired of the whiny church in the United States. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and when you get home, I'll give you the crown of life. He'll give us life with him for all eternity. God gives strength to those who suffer, but I think one of the most serious theological blind spots today in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. Because there seems to be a lot of sermons, a lot of books, a lot of radio programs, podcasts on how to avoid suffering and on what we're supposed to do when we hurt a little bit. We have therapy for suffering, but there's an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. See, Christians are looking for the good life, comfort and painless life. These things have become necessities that people are viewing today as basic rights. Don't hurt my feelings. Don't step on my toes. Give me my vacation time. Give me my nice house. Give me my car. And if they don't have these things, they think something's wrong. It stunts their spiritual growth because God intends us to grow through our trials, not to avoid them. Only God knows what we're going to face. And it's going to be different for each of us. 
And only God knows why we're going to face those things. But our trust must be that God knows what is best. We must live with the understanding that our life belongs to Jesus Christ. Grab that concept right there. Our life belongs to him. And persecution very well may come in our time. But even in this, we know that persecution has always been one of the church's most powerful tools for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we need courage, we must turn back to the promises of God and realize that God never allows suffering without a reason. Christ is the first and the last. He's the one who died and rose again. And because of who he is, he knows us inside and out. He knows every detail of all of our problems. He knows every tragedy that we have in life and every triumph, every death and every life. Jesus knows the stress of our trials. He knows the pain. He knows our troubles. He knows our enemies. He knows all about the destitution of being poor and in our difficult situations in life, even if they stay with us, even if they remain, even if we can't get rid of those problems, or even if they get worse and we struggle more and more and more, we have no reason to fear. And we have no reason to run from God. But if you forget that you're destined for the world to come, that you are a child of the King in heaven, you're going to fold. You're going to fold every time life gets tough. Church at Smyrna would have liked to have heard that the tribulations were going to end but Christ warned them that the worst, the worst was still coming. Christ will be with us through our most difficult hours. He will not abandon us. And even in death, Christ does not leave us. Death is just a, a doorway. That's all it is. It's a doorway to a glorious life for the believer in Jesus Christ. A life free from all suffering, poverty, hardships. And at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus tells us that the day is coming when he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. God will dwell with his people. He will be our God, we'll be his people, exempt from the troubles of this world. So be strengthened. Be strengthened by who he is and embrace the promises found in Hebrews chapter 13 where it says this, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Christians, we live in a difficult time, but the best is yet to come for those who follow Jesus Christ. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.